Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Greetings. We bring you greetings from Palm Beach Baptist Church. Uh, We thank you, Pastor Moss, for being so gracious as to host our family for the funeral. We thank you all. Uh, we realize that this is this is a group effort to serve the Lord and to serve others uh, for being so hospitable. Now, that's a gift. Uh, it's a commandment, uh, and it's a lost a lost practice in these days. Romans chapter one verses sixteen and seventeen. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. I've read in your hearing Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 from the New American Standard Version. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the kindness that you've shown us by allowing us to gather in your presence, Lord, even free of persecution, free of fear. Lord, please, please, in spite of our fallen humanity, have your way this hour. Reduce me truly to the nothing that I am. That, the, that our ears hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Lord, I, I buffet my flesh in this area that after preaching I might not be a castaway. Please speak, Lord. Keep us attentive. Remove the distractions. Children, thoughts for yesterday, thoughts for tomorrow. Satan decide, desires to, we have an enemy. He desires to distract us as well, Lord. Please let all the technology function. Let our Our minds be focused. Speak, Lord. Your servants hear it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to speak to you this morning. Not so much preach at you. uh, But I really want you to listen. Really want you to listen to the heart of what's being said. So the subject or the title of this message is The Langston Hughesian Tragedy, named after the famed African-American poet uh, Langston Hughes. And the theme of this message is understanding the purpose of the gospel. Understanding the purpose of the gospel. In the 1940 literary narrative, the world-renowned African-American poet Langston Hughes wrote the following biographical essay entitled, Salvation. I was saved from sin when I was going on 13, but not really saved. It happened like this. There was a big revival at Monty Reed's church, 
Every night for weeks there had been much preaching, singing, praying, and shouting, and some very hardened sinners had been brought to Christ. And the membership of the church had grown by leaps and bounds. Then just before the revival ended, they held a special meeting for children to bring the young lambs to the fold. My aunt spoke of it for days ahead. That night I was escorted to the front row and placed on the mourner's bench with all those younger, with all those other young sinners who had not yet been brought to Jesus. My aunt told me that when you were saved, you saw a light and something happened to you inside and Jesus came into your life and God was with you from then on. She said, you could see and hear and feel Jesus in your soul. I believed her. I had heard a great many old people say the same thing and it seemed to me they ought to know. So I sat there calmly in the hot, crowded church waiting for Jesus to come to me. The preacher preached a wonderful rhythmical sermon, all moans and shouts and lonely cries and dire pictures of hell. And then he sang a song about the ninety and nine safe in the fold, but one little lamb was left out in the cold. Then he said, won't you come? Won't you come to Jesus, young lambs? Won't you come? And he held out his arms to all us young sinners. There on the mourners bench, and the little girls cried, and some of them jumped up and went to Jesus right away, but most of us just sat there. A great many old people came and knelt around us and prayed, old women with jet black faces and braided hair, old men with work gnarled hands, and the church sang a song about the lower lights are burning, some poor sinners to be saved. And the whole building rocked with prayer and song. Still, I kept waiting to see Jesus. Finally, all the young people had gone to the altar and were saved, but one boy and me, he was around his son named Wesley. Wesley and I had we're surrounded by sisters and deacons praying. It was very hot in the church and getting late now. Finally, Wesley said to me in a whisper, God darn, I'm tired of this, of sitting here. Let's go and be saved. So he got up and was saved. Then I was left all alone on the morning's bench. My aunt came and knelt at my knees and cried while prayers and, and songs swirled all around me in the little church. The whole congregation prayed for me alone in a mighty wail of moans and voices. And I kept waiting serenely for Jesus, waiting, waiting, but he didn't come. I wanted to see him, but nothing happened to me. Nothing. I wanted something to happen, but nothing happened. I heard the songs and the minister saying, why don't you come, my dear child? Why don't you come to Jesus? Jesus is waiting for you. He wants you. Why don't you come? Sister Reed, what is this child's name? Langston, my aunt sobbed. Langston, why don't you come? Why don't you come and be saved, O Lamb of God? Why don't you come? That was really getting late. I began to be ashamed of myself holding everything up so long. I began to wonder what God thought about Wesley, who certain hadn't seen Jesus either, but who was now sitting proudly at the pla- on the platform, swinging his knickerbockered legs and grinning down at me, surrounded by deacons and old women on their knees praying. God had not struck Wesley dead for taking his name in vain or lying in the temple. So I decided that, that maybe to save further trouble, I'd better lie too. And say that Jesus has come and get up and be saved. So I got up. Suddenly the whole room broke into a sea of shouting as they saw me rise. Waves of rejoicing swept the place. Women leaped in the air. My aunt threw her arms around me. The minister took me by the hand and led me to the platform. When things quieted down in a hushed silence, punctuated by a few ecstatic amens, all the new young lambs were blessed in the name of God. Then joyous singing filled the room. That night for the first time in my life, But one, for I was a big boy, 12 years old, I cried. I cried in bed alone and I couldn't stop. I buried my head under the quilts, but my aunt heard me. 
She woke up and told my uncle I was crying because the Holy Ghost had come into my life and because I had seen Jesus. But I was really crying because I couldn't bear to tell her that I had lied, that I had deceived everybody in the church, that I hadn't seen Jesus, and that now I didn't believe there was a Jesus anymore since he didn't come to help me. The account we just heard is nothing short of a tragedy. That's a tragedy. The tragicality of it is found not only in the outcome, but shamefully here today in its frequency. It is a systemic problem in our church. Listen, these churchgoers wanted Langston Hughes to be saved. Langston Hughes himself was open to be saved, open to being saved. But he could not be saved because he wasn't given a proper explanation of the gospel. The fact that they didn't preach it tells me that they didn't know its purpose or even what it was. So they they were forced to resort to this type of demoralizing and emotional drain, emotionally draining manipulation. Huh? We are called to compel people to come. I don't deny that. But a compulsion that excludes the gospel in an attempt to bypass the intellect. A compulsion that seeks to exhaust a person and wear them out until they, they give up and come into the kingdom is an impotent compulsion. Cannot save a single solitary soul. The gospel is the theme of the biblical Christian faith. It has a specific purpose and specific content. Huh? No one is saying that you must master every nuance of the whole of the Christian faith to be saved. We're not saying that. As Dr. Martin Lord Jones said, there must be a clear understanding about an irreducible minimum. You cannot be a Christian at all unless you have that. No matter how much you cry, no matter how much you've been to church, no matter how much you know the traditions of what your hot cross buns and fish, you must have heard and understood content. And the purpose of it must have been applied in order for one to be one again. The book of Romans is written by Paul to a church that was never formally founded by an apostle. Its formation was the result of the spreading of the gospel through the Jewish 
diaspora, Jewish Jews who had come to faith at Pentecost carried the gospel to various Gentile cities and shared it to their neighbors. Paul had hoped to visit the church at Rome by this time, but he had been providentially hindered. They were wondering if Paul was perhaps ashamed of them in the gospel. On top of that, this mixed church had questions about the gospel and how it applies to everyday life. Still being unable to visit, And out of concern for the spiritual health of the church, Paul pens this epistle. It contains within it that irreducible minimum that will keep them until he can see them face to face. Introduction. The introduction of this letter is found in verses 1 through 17, and it's divided into three sections. First, the address and salutation, verses 1 through 7. It is here that he affirms his apostolic commitment to the gospel in the Gentile church in Rome. Second section, the thanksgiving, found in verses 8 through 15. He asserts his eagerness to both see them and preach the gospel to them for their sake and his. And finally, our text, verses 17 and 18, the theme of the letter and, and honestly the entire Bible. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. In these two verses, Paul answers the following five questions as it concerns the purpose of the gospel. Verse 16, we want to look at what it is what it does, how it is received, and who it is for. What it is, what it does, how it is received, who it is for. In verse 17, we want to look at why it works. Five irreducible minimums, five irreducible minimums, of which one must have an understanding if he or she is to be truly Then we will conclude with a proper presentation of the gospel. Now, before we look at these five truths, we want to first notice how they affect Paul's gospel demeanor. These truths affect God, affect Paul's demeanor toward the gospel. For he says, this is the reason he gives for not being ashamed, these truths. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. If a person has been truly saved by the gospel, they will not be ashamed of it. Will not be ashamed of it. They will boast in the cross of our Lord. They will have a proud affection for its content. This is why I I get a little sideways when I hear people say that their faith is private. (laughs) Because... How can one proclaim a private gospel? One of those has got to give. It can't be private and proclaimed. Amen? Now, if a person is ashamed or flat out embarrassed by the gospel, either they don't understand it, don't believe it's true, or they are convicted by it, but don't like it. Just don't like it. Just don't like it. 
don't like what it, what, what it's saying about them. All three of these gospel demeanors emanate from the heart of a lost person. Now, Paul makes this statement. I'm not ashamed. The question is this. Why would anyone even assume Paul was ashamed of the gospel? Why would someone even assume that? And what does he mean by this statement? In context, the Jews were being ostracized from their brothers because of the gospel. And to the Gentiles, the gospel is considered in those days, was considered in those days, a backwoods religion of the poor and uneducated. Paul is saying, in essence, I am aware of the stigma that accompanies the gospel. Nevertheless, it is so indispensable to me that I will boldly identify myself with it and his stigma. See that? It's similar back in the 80s. It came in popular 80s. Uh, it's similar to wearing braces. Back in the 1980s, when braces came out, they had a stigma. Uh, if, if you wore braces on your teeth, you were considered geeky or nerdy or uncool. And so, uh, especially amongst adolescents, for children it was tough. You wore braces, they picked on you. Braces and glasses, you know. And so everyone would say, look at those railroad tracks on your teeth. That's what they would say when you had braces. In fact, the only thing worse than having braces would be having crooked teeth. <laughs> now, when one first gets braces, you initially have two problems. Because now you have crooked teeth and railroad tracks <laughs> until the braces can have their desired effect. But once the corrective work has been completed and your braces removed, you now have no railroad tracks and no crooked teeth and you're better off than you were when you first started. Now, so all the orthodontist had to do, and it was tough at first, but all the orthodontist had to do to get you to be unashamed of wearing braces is convince you of the results. So whenever you walk into an orthodontist, what you'll see is a before and after picture. And you look at those teeth and you go, oh gosh. And you look at after the braces, you go, oh wow. That'll work for me. Now, in scripture, there may be no greater before an after picture concerning the gospel than this author, Paul of Tarsus. Paul's before picture, picture was that of an ugly soul breathing threats and slaughter on the church of God. His after picture was that of a man who suffered and died for the body of Christ. Now, what caused this change? It was the invasive gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, you either love it or you hate it. You either love it or you hate it, man. It ain't no in between. You either love it or you hate it. Why? Because the human soul is so dark and, and secretive and vulnerable and it is a well-guarded place. Some of us are even, are even burdened and haunted by the darkness that is in it and we want deliverance from it. Others are suppressing the truth, masquerading as if our lives are pristine and God-worthy. Then along comes a Christian, Christian, preaching the gospel. Yes, full of love, but it's a threatening love. It's a threatening love. It, 
in, in ways we've never experienced. It, it violates and, and penetrates and, and cuts and, and it offends and, it, and it's so honest and frightening. This gospel and this love. I remember as the Lord was drawing me in college, uh, his gospel was so heavy upon me. I, I wasn't saved, but I was going to church and I was able to manage church life all on my own. Got up, went to church, went to Sunday school, went to Bible study, came home. I was able to manage church life. Church life wasn't invasive. But the pastor kept preaching the gospel. And it was like the gospel was a distraction to my church life. <laughs> it, was, it was messing me up. Because I had compartmentalized my professed Christianity. And here, here he was with this gospel that kept telling me that everything I did, the million man march and, and volunteering at the elementary school and just, and just having one girlfriend wasn't good enough. The gospel kept overwhelming me. Church life didn't bother me. The gospel did. It's demands. At this point, when the gospel begins to overwhelm us, we either give in and say, Lord, what must I do to be saved, which is what I did. Or we gnash our teeth in anger at the instrument of God. Paul says, I know about the hostility that comes with the gospel I've given and received. I am still not ashamed because I know what the gospel is. 16 Clause B. He says, what is it? What is it? What is it? He says, it is the power of God. The nature of the gospel is that it has within it a power that only comes from God. The gospel is an exclusive display of God's exclusive power. It is a power that man does not have for something that man needs. Now, what is that something that man needs? He says it right there in the next clause. The power of God for Salvation. Salvation. That's, that's what it does. The gospel, that's what it does. It saves men. What is the power? The power of God. What does it do? It saves men. So now we have two adjacent principles that flow out of this statement. He says, the power of God to save. If the, if the gospel saves by the power of God, then we know for sure two things. First one is that man apparently must need to be saved. That's one thing we know. If you were just reading this text, you would say, man, man must need to be saved. There would be no need for a gospel of salvation if men needed no saving, right? We'll find out on, we'll find out from what, why they need saving later on. The second implied truth is this. Man must not be able to save himself. Why would God go through such lengths as sacrificing his son if man could save himself? And why would we suffer the reproach of Christ if we had the power to save ourselves? Now, so now that we know what it is, the power of God, and what it does bring salvation, the question is, how is it received? The text says that it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes? Who believes? How is it received? One salvation is received by properly believing the gospel. 
Now, a person can receive this salvation that comes by the power of God, not by working, working hard to be a good person, not by going to church, not by reading your Bible, not even, not even preaching the gospel will save you. I know a lot of unsaved preachers. People get saved off their messages and they're lost. They're lost. Even understanding the gospel alone cannot save you. It's necessary if you're going to be saved. But one, but, but understanding the gospel does not guarantee that you will be saved. You must understand it to believe it. But demons understand the gospel. There are people in here who have just heard it over and over and over again and just can relate the content of it. It must be the only way a person can receive salvation is by believing the God-empowered gospel. God has not empowered going to church as a means of salvation. He has not empowered church work as a means of salvation. He has not empowered Islam, modern Judaism, Hinduism, or Mormonism as a means of salvation. Only the true gospel properly believed can save a man. Now, why do I say properly believed? The word there, pistuo, means to trust, to be persuaded, to place confidence in. Let's say you find yourself driving through a same strange city, a city you've never been to, you're not familiar with. Stop in a McDonald's somewhere, Wendy's here, uh, to get a bite to eat, and you notice the gas tank is almost empty. Notice the gas tank is almost, thank you, sir. Notice the gas tank is almost empty. You see two people leaving, leaving Wendy's, walking toward the car. You ask both men, where is the closest gas station? Where's the closest gas station? One guy says, I believe there's one about five miles north. The other guy says, I am trusting there is one five miles south. Who will you follow? <laughs> yeah, you're gonna, you and why? You, you know you're gonna follow the one that's trusting, isn't that right? Because if, if he don't, if he's wrong, y'all in the same boat. <laughs> y'all on the side of the road out of gas. So he must, you know intuitively that there must, that, that when a person trusts, there's an expression of dependence. Isn't that right? When a person is depending on something, they can't afford for their confidence to be false. Isn't that right? The author of Hebrew warns, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Properly believing the gospel is not accepting the gospel as merely true and historically factual. Believing the gospel is to bet your soul on it. Huh? I'm betting my soul on this. Properly believing the gospel involves trust. But properly believing also involves duration. This word, stuo. This word believe is the present active participle. The present participle expresses continuous or repeated action in the Greek. A saving faith is a faith that trusts the gospel to the very end. It's not just, I had a feeling one moment and I said, I believe. 
That's not what saving faith is. The type of faith that saves a man, that saves a woman, that saves a person, is a faith that perseveres. The P in the two. Perseveres. John 8, 31 and 32. The Gospel of John says this. So Jesus was saying to these Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Amen. So if a person does not continue in his word, this person has not ceased to be a disciple of Christ. They prove that they were never truly disciples of Christ. See that? Colossians 1, 22 and 23. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation in the heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Again, reconciled to God, holy and blameless, if you continue in faith, which can be expressed as not, expressed as not moving away from the hope of the gospel. This perseverance in the faith is the mark of a true believer. The faith that we get, if it's genuine, upon our inception of believing, is a faith that always continues. Always continues. If you are living a life continuously that is contrary to the gospel, in holiness, in its affections, uh, in your duties and responsibilities, you have every reason to assume and every reason to believe that you are not saved and were never saved. Now, does this mean our faith cannot waver or that we can never doubt or get discouraged? Of course not. Of course not. Right? Uh, you may have a hurtful church experience that shakes your faith. Uh, some college professor asks you a question about your faith that you can't answer. Uh, I knew a guy uh, who went to the hospital. His daughter had a fever. Uh, they gave her some penicillin. She went to cardiac arrest, and he prayed. He was a faithful Christian. He prayed that the Lord would heal her. Cried out, and she died. Nine-year-old daughter died. And... uh he stopped going to church for, for three years and he shouted in the, 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 shouted. He shouted out in the hospital. I'll never ask you for anything again. Shouted out to the Lord. I'll never ask you for anything again. And he said, as he was leaving, he heard a small voice say, you will in time. Three years later, we left to go to a conference and he said, you know, I want to go. I think it's time. Came across a man out evangelizing, he was drunk, there was alcohol. you got to be careful, because you don't know what people have been going through. Alcohol on his breath, out cutting the grass, we stopped to go talk with him. Asked him if you were a Christian, he said, yeah, I'm a Christian. He said, uh, I haven't been to church in a while. I had my doubts, because he was, I could smell the alcohol. And he had been to church in over a month or two months. And uh, I said, well, sir, you need to go to church. God wants us to be a part of a body, to be strengthened. He said, I know, he said, but my, he said, my wife just died a month ago. And as, as we talked about, he turned back to something temporarily that was that was used to give him comfort in the world. And that day, he we prayed and he prayed, Lord, forgive me for doing what I've been doing. Lord, I, I need to know, I know what I need to do. I need to turn back around. I know I need to go. Lord, forgive me. The man seemed from his prayer to be genuinely saved. Just had a just was just in a nadir of life in a valley. So these things can happen. 
But if a person is truly saved, if you go back out into the world for a season, you'll be miserable and you won't find satisfaction. If you truly believed in the beginning, you'll return and persevere. Because God, God doesn't let go of those whose hand he's holding. And he can't be snatched out. You can't, no one can snatch you out of his hand. No matter, not even despair. Not even depression. Not even church disappointments. can snatch you out of God's hand because you're not saved by the church. You're saved by God. Now, so now we know what the gospel is. It is the power of God. We know what the gospel does. It brings salvation. We know how salvation is received. One must trust or believe in the gospel. But what is the gospel for? Who is the gospel for, I should say? Who is the gospel for? Text says that it's for everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. It's not just for one group of people. It is a gospel for all men. Now, he gives an order of revelation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What does that mean? It is not saying that God loves Jews more than Gentiles. God's, it's saying, rather, that God's original intent was for the Jews to be a kingdom of priests. His original intent was to, to spread his, his fame throughout the earth to the Jewish nation. Now, the, the, their rejection of God brought about a need for a Messiah or a Savior. So the Lord sent Jesus, his son. All of this, of course, is predetermined. But this is, in time, what it looks like. Now, the chief cornerstone was rejected by the Jews. So God has offered salvation to the Gentiles and that same offer to the Jews again. Scripture teaches. This is why the gospel was preached to the Jews first. Anytime you see it in the book of Acts, anytime you see Paul or Peter, the gospel was preached to the Jews first as he was their Messiah, but then to all men. So in Acts chapter 13, verse 46, when the Jews opposed Paul and Barnabas in Antioch, the text says, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, the Jews. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. See that? So God now calls all men everywhere to repent. If you believe the gospel, it's only for a certain race, class, or gender, or generation. You have embraced a false gospel, and you don't understand the purpose of the true gospel. God does not exclude any culture. And listen, this is important. God will not exclude anything about that culture but their sin. If you knowingly and willfully teach that a person must conform to Jewish culture or any other tradition along with believing the gospel in order to be saved, that's a false gospel. Paul says, let such a person or even an angel be anathema, be cursed. One West Hebrew Israelites believe white people, Europeans and other groups should not be offered repentance. 
that they can't repent. They can't be saved. That's what they believe. If you imply this truth with your lifestyle and how you interact with others, as Peter did, as Peter did you should be publicly rebuked. We are not above this temptation. I know missionaries who go plant churches, and they might not say it, but they imply that if you don't adopt American songs and American culture and American things, uh, that you're not really living the gospel right. And that's not true. Um, older people do this with younger generations. They wear dreadlocks because they wear skinny jeans or, or whatever it is that they might not like or see as uncool. And there's, there's nothing in the Bible that says otherwise. And you become a stumbling block and you imply that not only do they have to be saved and believe the gospel, but they got to change the style of dress and dress like the 80. And you have to be rebuked for that. You cannot be a stumbling. You make sure if you if you don't like gospel rap because you don't like rap, that's your business. But you don't tell the person that they're sinning or those people that they're sinning if you don't have evidence of it from the scripture. Not your preferences. Amen? Now, on the flip side, if you believe certain groups, for whatever reason, do not need the gospel, you don't understand it. Not only is it for all men as if everybody is eligible, everybody is responsible. Uh, there are some groups who have a hyper dispensationalism. They believe Jews don't need to repent. That they're saved. No one is above the gospel. And no one is beneath it. Amen? It's truly a gospel for all men. Now, the review. So now we know what the gospel is. It is the power of God. We know what the gospel does. It brings salvation. We know how salvation is received. One must continuously believe or trust in the gospel. The final, final question is, why does the gospel work? Why does it save us? What need is it meeting? What need is it meeting? Why, why do we need this gospel? Why do we need it? Verse 17. For it is the righteousness of God. Listen, when you're reading your Bible, do you see answers? Parenthetically, I just want to mention that. When you're reading your Bible and someone's preaching and you're following along, do you see answers to questions that you have, that the world has? Why are you here? Is this, is this a relic? Or do you live by it? Is it, your, is it greater than your necessary food? Text says, we need the gospel. It's right there. Because it makes us righteous. Apparently, we need the righteousness of God. And the gospel reveals that. Huh? gospel reveals to us a righteousness that comes from God and is available only to us through the gospel itself. Here's the heart of a matter. We have a need for that righteousness. And I, it doesn't matter how much 
church you attend or how long you've attended it, you are hellbound without it. Our righteousness, our unrighteousness is a huge problem in God's eyes, if not in our own. God sent his son to die on the cross for our unrighteousness so that we may not be punished. He, he has given us his son's righteousness that we might be justified before him. It's imputed. It's foreign. It's placed upon us. Unearned. Sovereignly given. Listen, listen. The gospel will not be precious to us. It will not be appealing to us. We will not want to be seen with it. We will be ashamed of it if we don't understand how desperately we and others need it. That's what Paul said, I'm not ashamed. I know the power of it. I know the consequences of it. I know what it brings about. I understand the seriousness and the urgency. It's the most important message that the world, that has ever entered the world. And what it does, saving the man, saving a man's soul is the most important thing that can be done. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. This verse is intended to support what was said before, those words. There are more than a few attempts to understand what faith to faith means. I believe Paul is speaking about how the gospel was spread in his time and historically. Again, Jews who had faith spread the gospel to Gentiles who believe, who also believed by faith. And of course, all who believe are in a sense benefactors of Jews who believed and revealed the Messiah and the gospel to us. Here he quotes Habakkuk when he says, but the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, but he uses the verse in a different way. He is, he is adding a spiritual component to it. Those who believe or have faith in the gospel are counted as righteous. The righteous people shall live, that is, not experience God's wrath. I believe the living there is saying that you're not going to die. You're not going to experience God's wrath by that same faith. This is the purpose of the gospel. You just heard was the purpose of the gospel. Now, I'm going to look at some content, and I'm going to present it as if you were presenting it to someone. Bad news. Sin is transgression of the law, breaking God's commandments. Any and all sin makes us worthy of hell, the second death, the just pouring out of God's wrath for eternity. Because of our sin, we are worthy of death and we know it. The wages of sin is death. It has separated us from God. All men. What is the gospel? The gospel, that's the bad news, means good news. Jesus, the Son of God and God himself became man. He was born of a virgin and lived a sinless and perfectly righteous life. He broke no laws. He broke no laws, he broke no commandments in thought or in deed, and he kept everyone that he was required to keep in thought or in deed. Even so, he was crucified and died in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. So his righteous life, if you go stand before God and say, and God says, why should I let you into heaven? You can't say, because I've been a good person. You can't say because I try. 
You can't be saying, because I have God in my heart. You have to be able to say, the only reason I should be allowed in your presence is because the righteousness of Christ has been placed upon me and made me positionally righteous in your steed. In your presence. That's it. Even though practically I'm unrighteous, positionally I am righteous because of the blood of Christ, uh, because of his sacrifice for me. That is the only reason I can stand in your presence uncondemned. See that? Now, if God says, even so, he said, I have to punish you for your sin. What do I do to punish you? You still did something wrong. There has to be punishment. You say, no. You punished me in Christ on the cross. Your wrath has been satisfied. Your anger has been satisfied. There's no leftover, even for the sins that I'm going to do. Have to, there's nothing left over. It has all been satisfied on the cross. See that? Now, on the third day, he rose from the grave in bodily form, showing that he has power over death in the grave. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he has prepared a place for us. And there he is currently interceding on our behalf. He will return again for his own, and we will be with him and glorify him and enjoy him forever. This is the content. This is gospel content and purpose. It is not ancillary to the function of the church. It is essential to the church's vitality. If you do not preach this, you will have a church filled with Langston Hughes. And that's what you have, don't you? Maybe not this church, but you know what I'm talking about. We all been there. You see them. Those of you who are dedicated to the gospel and have that content, you know what it's like. Impotent cultural, cultural Christians replacing the power of the Holy Spirit with baseless emotions. They'll fake it and they'll go to bed crying tears of hopelessness and their blood will be on our hands. Conclusion. Conclusion. When I'm out evangelizing, first thing I ask a person in America, America is kind of like here, especially in the South, everybody's a Christian. Everybody's a Christian. First thing I ask a person, are you a Christian? This is how the conversation goes about 70% of the time. Yes. Yes, I'm a Christian. So yes, yes, yeah, I grew up in the church. I was born a Christian. I was born in the church. I say, sir, what is a Christian? They say, oh, a, a Christian is a person that, that reads the Bible and put God's first in their life. They don't just talk the talk, but they walk the walk. They take God with them everywhere they go. And I say, sir, how does one become a Christian? And they pause for a second. And they look at me as if to say, I, I never thought about that before. And I interject. I say, that's a fair question, right? You said you were a Christian. They say, no, no, that's fair. So, so you want, you want my opinion? I say, no. I say, according to the Bible. They'll put their head down in shame. They'll get really quiet. And sometimes tears might start flowing. And they say to me, I've seen a million times, the door half open. They come in, they step behind the door. I don't know. Can you, can you please explain it to me? 
Can you please explain it to me? I don't know. My heart is broken when I see that because all I can see sometimes is a 50-year-old, 55-year-old, sometimes 65-year-old man or woman. And when I look at him, all I see is a 12-year-old Langston Hughes in front of me. That's all I see. It's a Langston Hughesian tragedy. That's all I see. Still crying. Still faking it. And when we look at each other, we both know. Shame on the church. For allowing that type of false belief. False conversion to just proliferate. As long as people come and give tithes and pay numbers and, and shake them. Good job, Pastor. I love you. Good job. Thank you, Pastor. What a great mess. I don't want to hear that mess, man. I don't need your flattery. I don't want to hear a good job. I want you to be saved. I want you to know the Lord. He's the only one that does a good job. Nothing good in me but Christ Jesus. And you can't flatter your way into the kingdom and I can't take you with me. God won't save you because you supported me so well. Because you swept every Sunday, every, every, every Sunday, deacon so-and-so sweeps the back of the church. Every Friday, deaconess so-and-so, she always cleans up. Boy, that woman's a faith. Must be God in her some kind of way. And she doesn't know the gospel. Understand the content. An irreducible minimum. She's not saved. He's not saved. No matter how bad I want him to be saved, the Lord knows I want him to be saved back. But if you, if you, if a person fakes it, what good is that? If you just let them just bleed to death spiritually in front of you, what good is that? I don't like walking up to people telling people, I don't, you know, I, I think you really need to examine yourself, brother, sister, see if you're in the faith. That's the last thing I want to say. Really, it's the second to the last thing. The last thing I ever want to hear is, Depart from me, you work of iniquity, for I never knew. That's the only reason I say it. That's the only reason I risk the offense. I don't like it. I challenge you. We all know people like this, especially in a place where Christianity is the norm. Talk to your family members and friends of yours. Say, Mama. Mom, I know you've been in church all your life. You were faithful at the, at the jumper church. Presbyterian church. You were faithful. I know you've been in church all your life. But I just want to be sure. Mama, what is the gospel? And what is its purpose? If they don't know the answer, explain it to them and call them to obey you. If you are here today and you are concerned, I might be a Langston Hughes Christian. Go to your pastors. Don't be embarrassed. I would never let anybody embarrass me out of my out of salvation of my soul. Pastor, we need to talk. I spent my whole life in the church and racked up a lot of Christian cliches. I even know how to match scripture to certain life applications. But the truth is, when I'm here, my responses are just trained habits. And even then, I don't feel any affection for God or the things of God. And when I leave here, Christ and the souls of men are the last things on my mind.
Pastor, I'm starting to wonder if I've been absorbed in a cultural Christianity. Pastor, I think I've been caught up in the trappings of my traditional upbringing. That's why you have to beg me to get involved and beg me to do this and beg me to do that and beg me to come here, beg me to do that. I'm doing, I'm just, I've compartmentalized my church and my church life. Pastor, more and more I'm realizing that I've been living a lie. Traveling under false pretense. I need some help. You're a Langston Hughes Christian, perhaps. Perhaps you know a Langston Hughes Christian. But I'll say this. Your life is not a tragedy. Not yet. You or they still have a chance. They still have a chance to avoid the most shameful and bloody thing that could ever happen to a person. For a person to go to hell from the church house. What a shame. What a disgrace. My heart should break, man. My heart should break, man. You gotta listen. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me. You're going to have to risk some relationships because you love someone so much that you're going to tell them the truth. And they may call you arrogant or haughty or self-righteous. You think you're over at that reformed church. I know what they believe over there. You think ain't nobody said. You can't worry about that. If you know they don't understand the content of the gospel and can't explain it, at least get the blood off of your hands. I'm not saying chase the person down, beat them up every day. That's all you talk about. But you got you know there are people who don't have a clue about what church is, what the gospel is, who Jesus is. All they doing is just saying stuff they heard. They no more hymns than Bible verses. You won't share it. You won't talk about it. You won't pull them aside with a gentle, prayerful heart and speak to them. You have relatives, especially older people. You know what I'm talking about. Please. Have enough love in your heart to, to, to bear the stigma for a little while. Let them thank you in heaven. They'll like you in heaven. They don't like you now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your grace and for your mercy. Uh, we thank you for the gospel. Uh, there are a lot of messages in this world. Uh, they, they, every time you turn on the TV, somebody's telling you to call this number. They're, dial this number, read this book. They have your whole life fixed up. Uh, if you just call here, if you just go there, if you just try this principle. Uh, Lord, the, the only message that can save us in this world and the next is the gospel. Uh, Lord, if we truly love people, well, parents, we know what it's like to have to hurt someone to love them. We know what it's like if we have friends that have to tell them something they don't want to hear because we love them. So how much more should we do that with humility, with brokenness, but but with boldness and in, in, in a in a and a, and a desire to say, I, I must be more faithful to God than man. I don't want this person lost. And they're just going to church and coming home. And afterward, they're cursing and they're lying and they're going to carnival. And there's a disconnect. And I don't believe they know and understand the gospel. I have to at least say it to them, even if they get upset with me, even if they don't talk to me, even if they don't invite me to places or things anymore. That's the way, that's all I see in scripture. That's the way it goes. Help me to love them enough. 
and love God enough, love you enough, Lord, to fulfill my purpose here to share your gospel. That we don't have any more Langston Hughes tragedies. So much as it depends on me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.